0: Hound
1: podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Roon, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. While I am revving up to run a half marathon on Sunday this week, I did a sum this week and I reckon I've run nearly 200 miles through the training programme over the past 10 weeks, so I'm hoping that 13 miles is going to be a breeze. Our interview this week is with the sharing producer Edward Young. He reminisces about how the showing scene has changed over time. Uh,
1: none of these championship shows had an evening performance back in the day. When we went to the Summer Champs, we were finished by 4 o'clock and I mean, that was half the appeal as children. We were, ran off and p- behaved very badly while our parents were all having barbecues and getting drunk and not knowing what we are up to.
0: I'll be talking to our news team about a new border control post for horses coming into Britain whether stabled horses can ever be happy, and what's coming up over the next few years for the Riding for the Disabled Association. Finally, bits and bitting expert Tricia Nassau-Williams will give us some advice on coping
2: with a strong horse. Why is this the situation? What is causing that scenario? And there can be a range of different causes that the problem is stemming from. More from Tricia later. For now,
0: buckle up your throat lash, and let's get started.
3: welcome to Horse and Hound's guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I've been back out and about in the showing myself this week. I attended a local show in Cumbria last weekend, and I actually had a win on a new pony I've been riding. She's a Dale's mare, and she won her novice class. It was actually a really long day, but um, the sun was shining, and it was great to be back out catching up with friends. So yeah, I've definitely got the bug again, and I'm ready for the season. So this week's guest interview is one of the best in the business. It's showing producer Edward Young. Edward Young is a top producer and show rider. His charges have won major titles at the Horse of the Year show and the Royal International several times over. Edward has ridden and produced champions, which gives him a little bit of a different take on things. So hi, Edward, how are you? Thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, Hi, Alex. No, thanks for asking me.
3: So Edward, how is the show season going so far? Have you and your team been out and about yet?
1: Yeah, we've had one one little outing. Uh, Well, one weekend. We went the only weekend, Area 6 and Area 17. Uh, We only have four really that are ready to show and so we took them and didn't have a bad touch really. We won a couple of classes, a couple of reserve championships and qualified one for the international. So it's always nice to get the ball rolling.
3: Definitely. And the Hoyes qualifiers are just around the corner. Do you feel like everyone's ready for that or are you still kind of preparing? Um, it seems to have come around really fast.
1: <laughs> no, we're a million miles off that. Um, <laughs> half the yard aren't ready to go anywhere yet. Uh, but uh, it's a long season. I always think that it's the last three shows that really count, not the first three. Definitely.
3: Definitely. Uh so Edward we're, we're so glad that you could join us here today and we wanted to get you to kind of take us back initially if that's all right and and tell us how you how you got into showing and if you have any early you know showing memories from from when you started out
1: Yeah well it was a long time ago but um my grandfather my maternal grandfather he was a bit of a horse dealer they had a a hardware and china shop but on the side used to deal in horses a bit so mum was always into them and um, my father he he qualified as a vet but his father was a butcher and it was always his ambition to have a bit of a small holding and when they got that he bought a horse Mm -hmm. and actually they bought off my grandfather which is how my dad met my mother Mm -hmm. and um, so they used to show welsh mountain ponies in hand section Mm -hmm. A's and B's and uh, they they enjoyed it and they did a bit of that and then when my brother and I came along my brother's a couple of years younger than me we started we started with Jim that It was incredible back then. It, things have changed so much. There were three Jim Carners within hacking distance of my house back in the day. And they used to sort of just it used to be every Sunday you'd go to one or the other um and just do the games in affiliated jumping and tack and turn out Best Rider. And then we got the bug a little bit, or my mother got the bug a bit more, and we started showing unaffiliated. And then affiliated, there were lots of sort of Dale shows. I'm originally from County Durham, and there were uh, a load of Dale shows and things in North Yorkshire and roundabout. So we go in the morning, uh, do the the showing classes, have some lunch, take the plats out, and then do the Pony Club games in the (laughs) afternoon and um, stop for fish and chips on the way home, usually. And uh, it, was, it was fun, it was really good fun. Uh, there, strangely enough, uh, there were quite a lot of boys, did it, in the northeast then. I used to, Keith reevely used to show against me, although he's older than me. He was in 14 twos when I was in 12 twos. He, his mother obviously went on to be a very good racehorse trainer. There was William Morehouse, who subsequently went on to make horse boxes. And anyway, we got keener, uh, we sort of stepped up a bit, and then when I was nine, uh, my mum bought a pony with the ride at Horse of the Year show, a pony called Norwood Vampire from a lady called Pat Maynard. She had a daughter, Nicola, who was a bit of a superstar, and she qualified about four ponies, sold three of them, and then she kept the best one and went to Hoyes. And mm-hmm. the pony was supposed to be it was supposed to be a safe conveyance for an idiot child, which was very handy because <laughs> my mother had an idiot child, and so um, it wasn't actually supposed to do very well, really. Although, again, people talk about the price of ponies. That was 1974, and that pony cost £2,000. Wow. Uh, and when I sort of Googled the retail price index, that would be 25000 oh, in today's wow. money. And you wouldn't be paying that for a pony like that today. Mm. Uh, anyway, went to Hoyes. Um, it was outside on the cinders on a bit of a hill with a telegraph pole in the middle of the ring. One idiot child rode into the Telegraph poll, and that was me. <laughs> um, but uh, they must have felt sorry for me. I was the youngest there by some distance and probably looked it. And um, so I ended up third. Which uh, mm. I was disappointed, really, because they <laughs> sent me out to a couple of Jim Carners for practices, and I'd gone champion and won little plastic cup, and thought that was brilliant. And then when I was only third at the next show, I was bitterly disappointed. <laughs> but um, but obviously I hadn't worked out the difference in standard and and what have you. And that was us away, really. We um, at the time because uh, my mother said I was too cheeky. I. She had the ponies produced uh, originally by jo- John Bell um, and then uh, Malcolm Jackson and then Davina Whiteman. Then we sort of progressed and we did some ponies from home. Uh, I was—I just missed it. There was a chap turned up uh, with a 13-2 to show and um, I was just out of the class. My brother Nigel ended up um, with the ride and mm-hmm. she was called Groundhills Hills Mannequin. And um, back in the day, you had to qualify for the novice at the Summer Champs and she kept being naughty. We went from Durham to Devon to qualify her for the novice class at the Summer Champs. Is that we, at the,
3: Brit- the BSPS? British at the Open BSPS, yeah. uh-huh.
1: hmm But seven hours to do wow. that.
3: Wow.
1: <laughs> and uh, we eventually qualified it. We went to Summer Champs. There must have been 40 in the class, and it was a really good year. There was Bottlingale Kingfisher. Um, there was Lechlade Violet. There were some really good ponies in there, and we won it. Wow. Um, it was really our first big win. It seems ridiculous now to say our first big win was the novice at the BSBS Summer Champs. <laughs> but it was a completely different thing back then. We kept the pony going and it won Hoys. In fact, we took her and then a full sister. Um in eighty-four they went to Hoys and they were first and second in the thirteen two class, which wow. I think's probably I don't know if two full sisters have been first and second at Hoys before or since um and then uh, that was that and then my mum and f- dad divorced and mum uh took up with Colin Rose who had a yard down in the Midlands at Stoke at the time and then they moved to Derbyshire and I took a day job and I did that for 9 or 10 years and uh I tried to dabble at the horses as well and I ended up doing both jobs badly mm-hmm. I was getting into trouble at work for doing that badly and I wasn't making much of a job of the horses either. So in the end, I gave up the day job and came down here and eventually took over their yard. 1st of April 2000, I took over. The 1st of April was probably an appropriate date to do it, really. (laughs)
3: And and when did so you just said there you you gave up your your day job to take horses on full time yeah when how did you make this decision to take showing on as a career because it's it's a difficult one isn't it I mean showing's our love but yeah what made you step up to be a full time producer
1: there were a few things really um, as I say I wasn't doing both either job properly so I I, I was going to have to make a decision um, I I couldn't really continue as i was and the 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 day job had got a little bit political and um i'd been approached by a different different outfit to go to them and um i'd been looking forward to that and then that fell through and that was a bit of a knock so i fell out of love with that a little bit but i think the, the ultimate thing was i decided that whilst i enjoyed both the jobs i was doing I'd find it difficult to live without the horses, but I could live without mm-hmm. the other ones. So, um, mm-hmm. so in the end, I decided I, I couldn't do without it. So I decided to jump in with both feet.
3: And, and do you remember the first time you had a winner on a horse at one of those big shows? You know, Hoy's Royal International, Windsor—the first time you were in the saddle at one of those prestigious events.
1: Um, yeah, I would think it would be the Legal Eagle horse. My first. I mean, he, he, he did win everywhere, but I think the one that, the first memory of, um, of a big win that really meant something was it, um, the, the show hack and Cobb championships, uh, back then there was only one Supreme on the last day. So that the, the first day champions went through mm-hmm. the second day, it was worth a thousand pounds, which was quite a lot back in 1999. And, um, I'd only been going a couple of years full time and all my previous experience had really been in ponies. I hadn't done a fat lot in horses. When mm. when I'd been involved in the yard after that, it would have been behind the scenes rather than in the ring. And um, it was a big supreme and he won a £1,000 and obviously the, the likes of Alistair Hood and people in it, which um, all people I'd looked up to. And the money was nice. The win was nice, and he was a very popular horse. I went into the bar afterwards, and everyone turned around and started clapping and things. It was a really oh. nice feeling. <laughs> he was a, he was a popular horse, and um, it made a big impression on me. It was, I say, that was my first big win, really, and it, it still means a lot to me
3: and you've obviously had some some amazing horses you've just mentioned the riding horse legal eagle there is there any others you you hold in really special regards a few names from from over your career
1: yeah i think um the other one that well one of the other ones that means a lot to me is a, a classic chauvinist mm-hmm. charles as we call him at home so when i started dabbling in horses uh there was a, a lady, well, she's a lady now, she was a girl at the time, came to work for my mum and Colin with a me- and asked if she could bring a horse with her. Mm. And um, they said yes, and they really liked it. They bought it, and I showed it in Hacks. It was called um, Chance Encounter, and um, and she did okay in Hacks. I was fourth at the International, and she, she didn't behave as Well, as she might on occasions, mm-hmm. but she was a nice mare anyway. Um, we sold her to some clients, the Kelbys, and then they, when they retired her, they bred from her and they bred Charles. So, uh, when I got to ride him, that was nice. He was champion at the international, he never had a good record at Toys, which was always disappointing. There was a couple of times I felt a bit badly done too. but he, um he 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 loved the international he won it uh i think two or three times and um and when he had seconds and things but because i'd ridden his mother that was nice and we've actually i kept his sister and we've now got his we've sort of got grandchildren from the original mayor knocking about the place now so he he means a lot the current rides um smarty be smart it was it had two seconds at to Horse the Year show, we? we haven't quite <laughs> got over the line yet. Um, although he did win the Intermediates this year, or last year, um, he means a lot, because he's a, he's a real character as well, and he, he's had his issues, really, um, so he's another one that means a lot, but there's been a lot, really, over the years, uh, it would be unfair to start, sort of There's been ponies as well that I haven't ridden, but that have meant a fair bit. We've got a yeah, it would be unfair to mention some. But yes, I've been very lucky with what we've had over the years.
3: And Edward, you've been producing and showing for for a fair while. How would you say the sport has changed, in your opinion, over the years?
1: Yeah, massively, really. Um, When I was a child... uh, That all the qualifiers, all the horse the year show qualifiers, and really the international qualifiers, they're all at uh, county or royal shows. We barely ever went to a rope. If we went to a rope and stake show, it was it was just a non qualifier. So the show pony qualifiers were places like Bucks County, Royal Norfolk which I don't think either of them have pony qualifiers now, and then shows like East of England, and obviously the Royal was a m- massive deal.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, it's incredible even now to think that that show's gone. So um, so we were in the public eye a lot more, and as I say, we were going to a lot more county shows. Shropshire and West Midlands had a qualifier. and they were busy shows. It was a lot harder, really, because there was so much going on. You had to contend with... The white helmets or parachutists Uh, i was in the class once and a a disoriented paratrooper landed in the middle of the ring someone had to start the show again (laughs) um it was you know it was wild and you you, you usually had to stay for the grand parade at the end of the day uh and that itself was like taking your life in your hands on occasions um so there was more of that there weren't any uh m ms were all, as far as I can remember, lead classes. Um, so basically, and there were no hunter ponies when I was in ponies. So basically, if you want to go to Horse of the Year show and you're under 16, you had, you either took a show pony, you went with the Princeville of Games, or you went in the Christie Beauford fourteen two show jumping class. Right. Uh, so there were three show pony classes at Horse of the Year show, 12-2, 13-2 and 14-2. And the qualification system was different then the first two qualified in England the first three in Scotland um, and obviously if you had a pony like Holly of Spring that was winning everywhere mm. well in the 13 to so holly of Spring and Cusa between them you know they took an awful lot of places up so so the 132 class might have been a bit smaller when you got to, to horse of the Year show. But um, but yeah, you had there were about seventy ki- Well, there were about seventy places at all. And wh- the ki- when there were kids riding in two or three classes, basically, you know, about forty or fifty children mm. nationwide went to horse the year show. But there was many people showing us today. I mean, there was a front line, a back line in the show pony classes, um, and that's how we progressed really when we started going into the bigger league you know, you hope to get a pull in the front line, then you hope to be stripped, and then you hope to get a rosette, and then, you know, you hope to get into a championship. So that was different. There were, I say, the classes were bigger, but there was less choice. Geographically, it was a lot more spread out. So we lived in the Northeast. Um, It was a lot easier to show from there. There would be Cleveland County that had a qualifier. Um, There was a show in Keswick that had a qualifier. There were three qualifiers in Scotland Bridge of Allen, the Royal Highlands, Scottish Horse. You know, were, things were spread out a lot more and there were more, more qualifiers. Whereas now I've moved to Derbyshire more or less for mm-hmm. that reason. Um, I find it very difficult to travel out the northeast now. I know Jerome manages it in the Emersons and um, I really take my hat off them because they've got so far to travel. Uh, so everything. The shows have moved away from the county shows, and we do a lot more equestrian centers and on surfaces. It's a lot more central in the country. Um, The number of competitors are spread out over a massive range of classes now. Um, I think there's probably less socializing than there was. Mm -hmm. Um, None of these championship shows had an evening performance back in the day when we went to the summer champs we were finished by four o'clock. And I mean, that was half the appeal as children. We all ran off and p- behaved very badly <laughs> while our parents were all having barbecues and getting drunk and not knowing what <laughs> we're up to. And I'm still in touch with, with friends I showed against back then who, who aren't in, in horses anymore, but um, we did form really strong friendships.
3: Brilliant well edward thank you so much for joining us today and yeah we can't wait to see you and your team out of, out and about in the ring this year just before you go have you got any exciting new faces you can you know tell us about any new horses or ponies set to make their debuts in the coming months
1: yeah we've got quite a lot of new faces down there really we we've hung on to um to some nice things from last year and Most of them are quite young, so they should be technically improving, Mm. although uh, it's obviously my job to make sure they do. Uh, But we've also we've got a nice new first ridden that we think a lot of. It's actually half sister, half brother to our existing um, our existing first ridden. Uh, We've got two very nice riding types that will double up in the hack classes. We've got, um, uh, it's not new to the circuit, but an intermediate hunter type that's new to us. Um, We've got a a very nice 13-hander that we had a few years ago, and he's come back to us. Actually, just today, just just before I came on here. (laughs) Um, And so we've got got a a four-year-old lightweight hunter, although he'll have to make up a bit yet. He's still a bit... um, Juvenile, we'll have to man up a bit. But yeah, we've got some nice things, really. Very pleased with them.
3: Super. Well, we can't wait to um, hear about their results later in the year. Well, thank you, Edward.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and see you soon, Alex.
0: So I'm here today with all three of my colleagues from
5: the Horse and Hound News Desk. First up, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. I was going to do impression of the the lady singing at the end of Cats where she goes daylight because the clocks have uh, gone forward, but I won't subject their lessons to them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I was half hoping to see Cats this
0: week because an amateur theatre company that some of my friends are in is staging it this week, but they're completely sold out, so I was too uh, slow, so no Cats Oh, well, I'll just me. have to sing it instead. <laughs> I, maybe we can arrange a private rendition. <laughs> Moving swiftly onwards, we also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How's it going, Lucy?
4: Yeah, good, thank you, Pippa. I've been out covering the Harbour Ride this weekend and it was the most beautiful day. I don't think there was a cloud in the sky and I was standing in the most beautiful part of Leicestershire to watch that and it was kind of a pinch yourself moment really. So um, I really enjoy covering those those hunt rides and uh, this one was uh, lots of very happy horses and riders having a wonderful time. I'm really fascinated
0: by those hunt rides Lucy Mm. because I don't think it's an area I think it's an area of the horse world that a lot of people don't know anything about but they're races where a lot of horses and riders go around at the same time in a similar way to a race on a race course, but it's over kind of natural country, is that right?
4: It's more, again, it's a hunt ride is kind of the best way to describe it really, in that quite often you'll have certain turning points and you're picking your own line across, a. a planned out course but not a, a set course in the way that you'd have eventing with um with set num you know certain numbers on fences and exactly you know a sort of narrow fence to jump through i mean they all vary quite a lot but this one um were really wide fence lines uh, a real mix of inviting hedges and post and rail and really rolling country really quite hilly country as well 3.6 miles so it was a proper fitness test but it really is a a true test of true of crossing the country, really. So, um, yeah, so it was a very exciting one to watch. And Becky Smith, an important moment, were the winners, which was lovely, actually. They won Silver Spur last year, and they were actually first across the finish line in the Golden Button, but she had lost her weight cloth too from home there. So, and this was her local, so it was really, really lovely that uh, she got, to, got that victory in front
0: of a home crowd. Oh, that was a bit of poetic justice then after what happened in the in the previous competition. Thank you, Lucy. Bit of a diversion there, but an interesting one. We also have with us our senior news writer, Becky Murray. How are you doing, Becky?
6: I'm good, thank you. I had a very productive weekend in the sun. I got my horse all baffed and clipped at long last, and now we've got snow forecast this week. So I feel like I've done this in a bit of a strange order, but it's fine. <laughs>
0: oh no! Is it? Is it? Is it going to be thick snow or just a little bit?
6: It says heavy snow on the forecast, but I, I'm, feel, I'm feeling positive. It can't come to much, <laughs> so. <it's, laughs> but um how are you Pippa you were out venting, weren't you
0: I was I was out venting in the sunshine which was really nice at Munster last weekend yes uh I think it was a two phases out of three day dressage was good cross country was good a clear just a couple of seconds over the time show jumping I think we'll say is remaining a work in progress but um to be honest I think what happened was uh, was just one of those things where uh, you know my horse is a small horse and he didn't quite get a distance properly and um, so things unraveled a little Little bit, but um, hoping, hoping for onwards and upwards for the next competition. And yeah, he was he was absolutely great cross country. And um, as I say, he is a is a small horse, so uh, to get round close to the time is a, is a good achievement for us and something I wanted to practice. So I was very pleased with him cross country oh good well done yeah next time 10 days and I'll be uh, out again at Lark Hill so uh, podcast listeners you can hear more about my adventing, uh, adventing adventures then but meanwhile we'll go on to this week's news Lucy this is a recurring theme but you've been looking at Brexit again this week what's what's new this time what's the new change coming up so we've written a
4: lot about people transporting horses from britain to the eu nations and the new rules and costs and issues and things people have had with that whereas this is looking more at what's happening with the changes with horses coming over to britain and particularly from the 1st of July, um, when a new border control post is going to be opening in Kent for arrivals from the Short Strait. So that's the uh, the crossings from northern France on, on the ferries or on the rail service there. So July is not far away and it seemed timely really to look at how, how things are progressing towards that deadline, um, what bringing horses into Britain is going to be like on that day onwards and like I said we already know about the ongoing snags people are still facing transporting horses through border control posts um, to get into Europe so it's really crucial really that people know what to expect and how to plan for traveling to Britain not least because you know July is summer months there's going to be added general traffic and things as well for people to contend with plus as of course July is kind of the peak of the British equestrian competition season so yeah I just thought it was a good time to have a check in and see what i could find out about um about all that
0: and i know that your story is flagged that there are a lot of questions remaining about this border control post there's a lot of things that we don't know about how it'll work what what are those things what what is unclear at the moment
4: yes so i went in wanting to get answers and as you said i ended up with a lot of questions which i think is important in itself really given Going back to the fact that July isn't very far away. So DEFRA has confirmed that there's going to be no additional restrictions placed on equine imports and importers will still be free to enter any port. So the border control post is going to be operational for, as I said, those coming from the short straits, but others will continue to have checks at destination as happened now. So that's, you know, if you're coming in uh, into Britain from um, from another, another port that's not down there in Kent. But what we don't know, if it's going to be every box, uh, we don't know the degree of offloading required, opening hours, what happens if that border control post is shut. There's also kind of the big question of how it's going to be enforced, particularly for those uh, horses that are coming in and will be marked for checks at destination uh, from entering through other other routes that where there isn't a border control post. Um, Plus, there's also another key point about the balance, how to make sure that the rules are complied with, but without adding vast amounts of extra bureaucracy, extra cost for those who are already complying with the rules.
0: So, yeah, there's a few unknowns there. Mm. And you spoke to Roly hours of World Horse Welfare as well, and he flagged some concerns about how things are working with, with importing horses at the moment. What sort of things was he talking about? so he is very concerned about as he calls it the piecemeal approach
4: and what that could mean so he highlighted uh, non-compliance and the worry of horses enduring unnecessarily lengthy sea and road journeys uh, for non-compliant people to circumnavigate the system or try to so he's concerned that unless lorries are escorted that non-compliant transporters will simply bypass the border control uh, posts and he said that world horse welfare has good reason to believe some will simply declare as empty and move through the ports with no live animal checks in place. He also highlighted that Irish horses entering Britain via Scotland is already a weak point in the border. He said that health certificate requirements for movements of horses from the Republic of Ireland uh, entering, entering Britain via Scotland are failing and while many of those horses are being declared as from Northern Ireland, whether that's the case or not it's again it comes back to enforcement and knowing what's happening he said and this is a quote he said with no border control post in scotland for the foreseeable future we have grave concerns that unscrupulous horse traders will continue to use this route both from uh, southern ireland and further afield in the eu so yeah it's it is quite concerning it's quite a way away yet um But I'm hoping that between now and July we'll have some answers to some of these questions and that it will have smooth transport for anyone trying to get back from competing abroad or coming to the UK for competition or for whatever reason with their horses. But uh, yeah, I think hopefully in the next, next few weeks are going to be quite critical to find
0: out how this is going to work and how it's going to be enforced. Mm, Well, thank you, Lucy. I was about to say we look forward to following that story more. I'm not sure I'm looking forward forward to it, but we will be (laughs) following that story and finding out how it is going to work. Thank you, Lucy. Eleanor, you are all about the big questions at the moment. I think it was last week we were talking about whether we were going to be riding horses in 20 years' time, and this week it's about whether stabled horses can ever be happy. So you were at a webinar which was run by world horse welfare and and that's what this story came spinning off i think what Mm. tell us about that what was the presentation about in that webinar and what was being said
5: yeah, so that was uh, that was the main question. The title of the webinar was "Can a stabled horse truly be a happy one?" And it was really interesting and and not entirely what I had expected. Um, in that I had thought the answer would just be no, <laughs> um, and it obviously wasn't as simple as that. And it was although I think the the sort of underlying uh, message was that if a horse has to be stabled, then how can we look at improving its happiness? There was some really really interesting stuff. So. Andrew McLean who he's an award-winning animal behavioral scientist, but also uh, formerly rode to to international level in eventing dressage and show jumping, I think, was um, talking about sort of how horses' brains work and how their evolutionary uh, history has led to them being sort of much more in the moment than than people, so that was all really interesting. But he was saying, obviously, our uh, understanding of horse welfare has changed so much, so it's not just saying Uh, you know, as long as they've got food and water and shelter, they're okay. It's well, actually, they've got these basic evolutionary needs for things like foraging, not just giving them enough food, but allowing them to forage. And one of these big needs is social contact with other horses.
0: Oh, okay. And so were there any suggestions about what can be done if horses do have to be stabled? What, What can be done to make their lives better?
5: Well, he was saying the, the actual stable itself can be very, you know, uh, can be crucial to that. So he said he'd done some work with the mounted police branch, for example, and he suggested to them that they take down the bars between the horses' stables so that they could touch each other. And he said of, there was some uh, initial ruckus, I think was the word he used, as they were sort of squealing at each other. But once they'd settled down, and it actually, and I think in some cases, uh, the horses had to be moved around so they were next to other horses they liked. <laughs> um, but he he said after all he had all settled down they were much quieter and calmer on patrol. And he also talked about a trainer, someone he knows works for a racing trainer where some of the bricks have fallen out between the stables. And he said the first thing the horses do after work is go and sniff, sniff the other horses through the holes. So he says it's essential horses have sort of the ability to touch each other and, and that seeing isn't enough, seeing another horse isn't enough.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Mm. And an interesting point there about moving the horses round so that they are with their friends. I know that um, William Foxpitt once told me that one of the things that his groom Jackie Potts is very good at is working out which stables will suit which horses. And uh, that's actually a neat tie-in because this week's Horse and Ham magazine is edited by William and Alice Foxpit and also features Jackie. So do make sure you pick that up. Nice segue into a plug there. Thank <laughs> you, Eleanor. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> moving on, Becky you've been looking at a story about the Riding for the Disabled Association's new strategy. What sort of thing is being covered in this three-year plan?
6: The charity is looking at different things like growth and resources and how they expand their non-ridden activities and really how they support their participants and amazing volunteers. Now, within these plans, RDA is hoping to support an additional 10,000 children and adults by 2025. And this will involve opening 40 new groups and 30 new accessibility mark centres, which are riding schools trained by the RDA. But I think it's really exciting plans for RDA, especially given they were hit hard by COVID and are still coming back from that, but they sound very determined and the strategy covers exactly how they hope to achieve these different goals.
0: Mm, sounds like a real positive. And I believe there's a change of personnel coming up
6: at the top of that organisation. Is that right? That's right. Ed Breacher, the chief executive of 17 years, is moving on in April. He is being replaced by the interim chief executive, Paul Ringer, who I've been speaking to for this story. And Paul will be in the role until the recruitment of a permanent successor for Ed um, completes. And I think you spoke to Paul a little
0: about some of the challenges that the RDA has had to overcome. You touched on them earlier with uh, coming back from Covid, but what sort of things was he mentioning?
6: Well, the biggest one and one we've covered um, a couple of times now is the RDA's struggle to find suitable horses. This has been a huge hurdle for groups, and there are a number of factors that sort of come into this. Uh, sort of things like people not understanding what sort of horses the RDA is really looking for, and also combined with the increase in horse prices generally. Now, Paul was very open and said, the charity knows this continues to be an issue, but they are working on an equine plan with a number of different solutions. So this might involve training younger horses or raising more funds to buy horses and meet some of these prices. He said, it's not a case of waiting for a single solution and they don't want to miss the opportunity of helping more riders. So it's definitely something the RDA is actively trying to tackle.
0: Well, that's good to hear and uh, look forward to seeing how those plans work out for them over the next couple of years. Thank you, Becky. And thank you to Lucy and Ella for joining us today too. Now we're going over to Tricia Nassau-Williams. Tricia is a qualified saddler, saddle fitter, bit and bridle fitter and liveryman at the worshipful company of Loriners. She's lectured in lorinery, that is, bits and bridling, to saddlery students at Capel Manor College for many years. Having previously run her own retail saddlery shop specialising in lorinery and saddle fitting, she now works as the field officer and lorinerie consultant for the British Equestrian Trade Association.
2: Over to you, Tricia. So on this episode, we're going to be talking about a horse or horses that are, are too strong or not in control, not a nice experience for anybody. But the first thing I would always want to say is, why is this the situation? What is causing that scenario? And there can be a range of different causes that the problem is stemming from. And to find out why it is, is, is so much more vital for welfare than just putting a tighter noseband on or using a martingale or getting a stronger bit. If we can find out what the issue is, there's lots of laurenry and saddlery that we can employ, but we need to employ it in an educated and meaningful way. So firstly, work through all your contributing factors before you progress any further. So check that the horse isn't, isn't any discomfort of any type. Does his saddle fit properly? Is the bridle the correct fit? If you're using restrictive nosebands, are they too tight? Get his mouth and teeth routinely checked at least every year or more frequently, if advised by a really good equine dental technician a dentistry vet so that issues can be spotted before they become problems which may be the case in, in this scenario of question make sure that the level of training is appropriate for both the rider and the horse and know very clearly the background of the horse what his previous experiences are so that you can you can assess if it's appropriate what you're asking of him in his environment his stable management even things down to checking that his feeding is correct. You find a horse that's sort of popping out of his head and you listen to what some people might be feeding it, you think, well, gosh, I'm not not surprised. So just going through every single detail of your stable management routine and everything involved, the level of turnout and so on, before you go any further. If you're struggling with that one, that's a really good time to get in some additional support and help um, from your saddler, from your bit and bridle fitter, equine physio, and if there is something physically wrong, you vet. But having gone through all of those different hoops, if you're then looking at what different bit you could, Bradley could select to give you additional control, then you want to look at the, the way of the horse is going. Um, in what way is he being strong, which might sound a silly thing to ask, uh, he's too strong, he's going too fast, but is he bringing his head up and evading the action of the bit? Is he taking his head down? Is he running through his shoulder? Is he pulling off to one side? Is he just leaning on the bit? And if you can think of those different scenarios, you can then work to what might help you best. So there are some bits that are more inclined to encourage the head up, some that are more inclined to encourage the head down. And so you can use different resolves for different situations to think logically about bitting. And that's where understanding the mechanics of bits really comes into play and learning much more about them. It may just be that in fact using a more restrictive noseband or employing a, a, something such as a running martingale is a help and there's nothing wrong with that but if you do use a restrictive noseband make sure that you it is not over tightened which is a, generally the biggest fault of noseband use. So however closely fitting the noseband is, you should be able to easily place two fit of your fingers underneath the noseband at the front of his nose, in between the underneath of the noseband and the front of his nose, and it's got to be at the front. There's no point uh, seeing what space you've got to the side because that may have a natural breaching gap anyway. So it's got to be, be able to get uh, two fingers underneath. And with a drop nose band or a flash nose band or a grackle nose band that goes round and underneath the mouth I was always looked to be able to run a finger loosely around between the face and the strap so I got room for one finger to go in in that space there. While I can't specify just any one bit or a selection of bits to use if your horse is perceived to be strong or out of control the answer to it solving the problem successfully is to really look at him, look at his confirmation, look at the way in which he's strong, understand the different mechanics of bidding and the different bits available and then implement a logical resolve from those different possibilities. And if you're not sure, get sound help and advice. So if you're wanting to know a bit more about Bits and Bitting, BETA have got a BETA Laurenry course. It's a one-day course that covers many of the topics to do with bitting, whether it's its selection, equine mouth confirmation, different types of bit and mouthpiece, and all the considerations to help you with bitting your horse. Do go to beta-uk.org to find out more.
0: Thank you, Trisha. Trisha will be back with us next week to talk about equine mouth assessments and our interview will be with jockey Davey Russell who will reminisce about double grand national winner Tiger Roll's incredible career. And of course, we'll have all the week's news as normal. Have a good week. Talk to you next time. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.